Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody. In today's episode, in association with Comply Vantage, we're asking how will financial crime evolve in 2023? While unfortunately this isn't Steven Spielberg's minority report and we can't predict the crimes of the future, the experts do do incredible work to keep on top of growing practices in financial crime and money laundering in the hope of keeping businesses, finances and people safe. This year, we'll see a new set of challenges that will stress test the industry. But hopefully, by knowing something about them, you can stay one step ahead of bad actors. So, in this show, we've put together a panel of brilliant experts to discuss how will 2023's economic landscape impact financial crime? What are some of the emerging trends? And what innovations are helping anti-money laundering, compliance and financial crime players keep up with the challenges? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Heads up, people. We've got a brand spanking new report dropping very soon. The 11FS Pulse Report 2023 will officially land later this month. What were the best fintech user journeys of 2022? Which UX trends are set to take the new year by storm? All of this will be answered and more with winning insights from our 11FS Pulse team experts and global industry leaders. Go to info.11fs.com slash pulse dash report to download and to find out more. That's info.11fs.com slash pulse dash report. We can't wait to share what we've been working on. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First off, I'm joined by FinTech Insider debutant Ian Armstrong, Regulatory Affairs Practice Lead at Comply Advantage. Welcome, Ian. Can you give our listeners a bit more information about you and also Comply Advantage's latest report? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks, Kate. So yeah, Comply Advantage, we're the industry's leading source of artificial intelligence-driven financial crime risk data. Uh, Our goal really is to empower businesses to identify the true risk of their customers and to make decisions that are quick, accurate, uh, and in full confidence. So internally, I'm known as a customer in residence. Um, That's because prior to this, I spent uh, the best part of 20 years as a risk practitioner. So uh, the, the kind of person who would be a Comply Advantage customer. Uh, I've covered financial crime, uh, both in banks, in first line and second line teams, uh, and also the regulator, where I worked on uh, criminal investigations into investment fraud. Uh, So I'm highly invested in the financial crime risk mitigation space, and I'm really excited to be invited onto the podcast today. We've recently released our annual State of Financial Crime survey, and to To produce the report, we surveyed over 800 senior compliance and C-suite level individuals across the industry. Uh, We asked them questions on a whole range of different topics, 
uh, and then we add long form commentary and uh, our own insights into what we feel is the direction of travel for financial crime this year uh, and the actions you can think about taking in response to that. So we've surveyed 800 people. It's already been downloaded by more than that. Uh, I'd encourage all of your listeners to download it. Uh, and I hope we can put a link to it in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Really looking forward to get your perspective on what we're going to cover today. We also have a very, very welcome return for Jessica Kaff, Head of Financial Crime Project Delivery at Fintrail. Thanks for joining us, Jess. What can you tell us about Fintrail and your role there, please? Lovely to be back, Kate. I really enjoy coming on these podcasts. Uh, should be a great conversation. So um, Fintrail is an anti-financial crime consultancy. We primarily work with fintechs, but also traditional firms, regtechs, anyone in this kind of sphere. And in my role, I head up the great core consulting team. So delivering a lot of different financial crime projects on anything. So building controls, testing, assurance, anything, basically solving a lot of different financial crime challenges. So hopefully I can bring something to the conversation today. Absolutely. Um, already super excited to, to learn from both of you. Some amazing experiences uh, across the team. So uh, with that, let's let's dive in. So if Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominated the conversation in sanctions and financial crime last year, the economic downturn across the world looks pretty certain to shape 2023. So how is the economic landscape shaping the types of financial crime we're seeing, Jess? There is a huge correlation between what's happening in the wider economy and what happens in financial crime. And obviously, at the moment, we are in, well, not quite, but on the way into a recession. Um, and Fintrail actually produced a couple of short papers towards the end of last year, looking at how financial crime typologies are changing as we look into a recession. A downturn opens up a whole suite of opportunities for financial crime to take advantage of you know, people in vulnerable situations, people trying to me- make ends meet, Um, And there's loads of different things that we're starting to see. So we see a lot of increase in uh, things like scams. So we're seeing a lot of uh, fraud scams, those kind of things. We're also seeing increasing um, uh, organized crime group activity as well. So taking advantage of lots of different kind of vulnerable people in different stages as well. Um, And also looking at lots of different types of fraud. So that could also be internal employee fraud, um, false fraud claims from insurance. So loads of different types of typologies that we're seeing off the back of quite desperate and vulnerable situations that different people are, are in, people taking advantage of investment scams, all of these types of things that we're really seeing. And we will expect to see a lot more of this into 2023. Yeah, that sounds very similar to kind of what you guys found in your report in. Were there any particular areas or trends that you're, the people you interviewed were particularly concerned about building on what Jess has introduced? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I have to echo uh, what Jess has said there. So, so we find that there are certain patterns of financial crime which run very much counter cyclically to the overall health of the economy. Um, so, uh, when the economy turns down, certain types of financial crime go up. Um, and there are a few ways that operates. So I definitely think you're right, Jess, to call out investment fraud. So, um, back in my days when I was working on investigations into investment fraud at the regulator. A couple of years into that job, uh, Lehman Brothers fell and the, the global economic crash happened. And we saw an almost immediate increase uh, in reports of that type of fraud. I think there's, there's a couple of things going on there. So one, people who are kind of struggling financially uh, are become increasingly desperate. But e- even wealthy people who start to see their net worth fall, they tend to become increasingly susceptible to to falling victim to to these types of scams that we're talking about 
Another thing I'd mention is that criminals can be impacted by global events just as much as anyone else. Um, so if you think, for example, about in the, um, the early days of the pandemic, or the kind of most severe lockdown periods where people were uh, not leaving their houses, you know, the movement of goods around the globe started to slow quite rapidly. Uh, this meant that some of those kind of traditional avenues, let's say, that are available to criminals, so things like smuggling or prostitution, for example, were not making them as much money as they had been previously. So they had to kind of conceive of new ways of generating cash. And that meant new criminal activities and criminal typologies. And I suppose the third point I'd make is that, um, unfortunately, times like these can lead hitherto law-abiding people to consider committing crime themselves. That's another thing that I definitely saw back in the kind of 2008 to 2010 period. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a, a depressing picture. Jess, what does the industry need to do to prepare itself for this potential bump in, in financial crime? I think it's a really tricky situation because some of the typologies that myself and Ian have outlined are actually really difficult for firms to start to pick out um, and deal with because they are different to the traditional typologies that we have seen and they're going to have to adjust their controls in order to reflect that change in typology. So if you take, for example, the traditional money mule, which has traditionally been someone that has been, you know, between the ages of 18, 24, something like that. But that profile has completely changed at the moment. We're seeing more people in their 30s, 40s, 50s getting into money muling because of some of the vulnerabilities and some of the um, wider economic situations. They are being drawn into those different types of problems. So what firms have traditionally done and put those simple barriers and controls in place doesn't seem to work at the moment and they really need to think about what their controls are and how to frame those in line with the new typologies but let's be realistic here a lot of firms themselves because of the economic downturn don't necessarily have a lot of funds to be able to start looking at all of these great controls to deal with some of these so i think firms have to take a sensible and proportional proportionate sorry approach to how they're going to deal with this, looking at what their money can do, looking at where your biggest risks are, any big changes in typologies, and starting to think very carefully about what to put in place to solve some of these problems, whether or not that be uh, new technology or utilising your existing technology in a slightly more um, useful and interesting way. Ian, what are you saying? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that's spot on, really. When you work in the anti-financial crime space, you you really only have three things at your disposal, which are people, processes and technology. And those are the things that you need to be looking at and assessing whether each component is working as effectively as possible. And it's when you start to do that, you realise that actually all three things are interlinked. They're like three points on a triangle with each point is kind of linked to the other two. Uh, and if any one of the points on that triangle is ineffective, then the other two are going to suffer as a result. So I mean, people, are, I always say, are your most important asset, even with all the benefits of automation um, and technology, you're always going to need good, well-trained people to be in place to actually make the key decisions. So start there, ask yourself if they're being given adequate training, uh, but not so much that they get training fatigue. Uh, are they well resourced and not overworked? Um, the cognitive load that's associated with being a, uh, like say an ops analyst who onboards people or a thin crime investigator can be really, really severe. Uh, and that's made a lot worse if those other two points 
processes and technology are not as good as they could be. And that's when you get people kind of context switching too much um, that they start making mistakes. Um, so from there, you've got your processes, which to me are just basically anything written down. So things like your standard operating procedures, your policies, basically anything which is written down, which enables your kind of people to, to start to prioritize. And so you need to ask whether those processes, which your people are following as, as logical as they can be, they don't have redundant steps in them. They're designed to get to the right outcomes more efficiently. Uh, and once you're, you're comfortable with your people and your processes, then it really does come down to your technology. And the key there is to, to make sure that technology is an enabler to risk mitigation uh, and effective operational processes. Uh, we've got a, a lot of very bright people in our business, for example, refining our uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning models and training those models to optimize those processes uh, to try and reduce that cognitive load of the, the analysts through things like um, smart alert prioritization. So your ops agents can start to separate the signal from the noise and say, okay, these things here are, are my real red flags. These ones are maybe amber flags and so on. Uh, and all three of those those parts of the triangle need to be flexible enough that when the risk landscape changes, you can change with it quite quickly. And that's, you, you mentioned sanctions last year. I mean, that's something that a lot of people experience having to quickly switch focus when um, the sanctions list were just growing and growing. Jess, you, you already alluded to in your, your previous answer, kind of the fact that your budgets are, are tightening. So I guess that's that's one lens, you know, things become more difficult to manage because companies have, you know, lower budgets to spend but does it also potentially also drive companies to take more risk with the types of customers that they're onboarding are we seeing companies changing their onboarding approach to really try and increase their market increase their increase their customer base so we thankfully haven't actually seen too much of this um, but, but it ultimately it comes down to the specific sort of culture of the firm so most of the time we haven't seen firms taking any unnecessary risks and onboarding people that they shouldn't, because ultimately they know that if they get financial crime wrong, it's not good to their business uh, for multiple reasons. You could get a fine that's, you know, simple financial burden, reputational damage. You could have your funding removed, um, all of these different things. You could lose your license. But also if you are onboarding a, a bunch of people and you're taking risks to onboard people that might be fraudulent, that's not a long-term sustainable business model either because you're going to have a bunch of fraudsters in your customer base and you're going to have to get rid of them at some point. And hopefully if your ongoing monitoring picks them up as you go through, you will be removing them and it'll be additional operational burden and operational costs further down the line. So I haven't actually seen firms taking too many unnecessary risks. Um, and if we do, we advise them not to very sternly because it's a, ultimately in the long term, it's a, it's a pretty stupid idea. Nice. I kept succinct. Um, Ian, I think we've talked through, I suppose, why you know, the negative consequences for financial institutions of getting this wrong. But you know, what are the real world consequences for, for ordinary people, for ordinary customers of, of financial services not getting this right? Yeah, right. So, I mean, the real world consequences are, are really, really severe. So if you look at, say, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, if you look at FinCEN in the United States, if you look at the uh, EU, there's this convergence around the idea that we should be looking harder at the predicate offences for money laundering. Uh, and those predicate offences include things like human trafficking. So there are 50 million people that are subject to human trafficking right now around the world. 
Uh, we're actually currently working with a partner to integrate with our technology and highlight potential indicators of, of modern slavery. And so if, if we can be part of the solution to these problems, then we feel that we're doing a lot more than just helping banks to avoid regulatory fines, which is quite often what people talk about. But um, I'm always really keen to point out that there are human stories behind the, these acts. Um, that's why I really appreciate the chance to come on podcasts like this. And it's certainly what inspires me to get up each day and do the job. Uh, so another predicate offence is environmental crime. There was a report from the World Wildlife Fund a couple of years ago that highlighted, um, I think it was estimated 94% of the deforestation of the Brazilian rainforest was potentially illegal. You think all that money has to go somewhere. And on a more, maybe a more micro scale, in my previous life as a criminal investigator, I spoke to literally hundreds of victims of various types of fraud. Uh, these were Quite often people, you know, on the edge of retiring or maybe in the early stages of retirement. Um, and they, they'd not only lost their ability to enjoy their retirement, but they'd lost any hope of passing anything on to their children or their grandchildren. And the fact that we still see so much of this type of fraud is, is really a genuine source of sadness to me. I think partly because it's where my career in anti-financial crime got going. No, it's um, it's really important, as you say, to to kind of focus on that human side of it, and, and as you say, like a lot of stuff that really still needs to be fixed. Um, we've already touched on how depressingly innovative these these criminals can be, and and how quickly they can they can change and adapt. So, Jess, how easy is it for the industry to spot these new trends in financial crime? What is it that that you can do to to stay on top of things? I'm going to be a little bit positive here, actually, because there are loads of great resources um, to be able to spot these trends. But actually, it's also very difficult to make sure that you are using those resources to spot the trends, because a lot of people, when you're doing your day-to-day -day job, trying to make sure your controls are in place, you're doing the tasks, you forget to lift your head above water and think, what are the next trends around the corner? Um, so there are a few things I suggest that people do to make sure that they are staying up to date. One is horizon scanning, which is often forgotten about. So making sure you're staying up to date with things like the NCA um, alerts that are that come out very frequently. Also great industry papers like the one that uh, Comply has put out as well. We do also put out lots of really interesting insights as well. Um, so there's loads and loads of great insights. Um, but also it's really important to be involved in different communities, industry groups, working groups. There are a ton of these out there where we can discuss different typologies and, and all the changes that criminals are um, doing. We have the FinTech Financial Crime Exchange, for example, which is for FinTechs to exchange uh, different typologies. Um, but also, on top of all these external things, you need to look internally as well. So thinking, what ongoing monitoring do you have in place to spot new typologies right at the coalface? Um, so look at your program. Are you spotting new things? And are you reacting to those new typologies when you spot them? So if you spot a new OCG group coming through uh, your systems, then are you tweaking your controls off the back of that? And also, are you sharing what you can with the community as well to make sure that other, other people that might be spotting a similar typology can also pick it up? Some great tips there. Ian, I'm 100% not an expert in financial crime, but you know, we have seen a lot of news stories around crowdfunding platforms in particular. So what, what's happening there? Have, have crowdfunding platforms become like a growing risk in financial crime? Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely this sense that uh, crowdfunding and other forms of decentralized finance are becoming a preferred channel for the funding of extremism. 
there's this uh, ability to raise and move quite large sums of money through channels that, that kind of sit outside of traditional financial services. So it's almost inevitable, unfortunately, that it has attracted the attention of the criminally minded, let's say. Uh, and one of the really staggering results we got back from our survey was in response to the question, which was in the last 12 months, what change have you seen in attempts to use decentralized finance to fund political extremism? Now, remember, this is a survey of 800 people in senior positions and 87% of, of respondents had seen some sort of increase. Uh, we think it was particularly driven by uh, some of the protests that were happening uh, across Ottawa last year and the border crossings, um, which which sort of raised awareness of this. So I, I should say, I mean, this this issue has been around for a while, but certainly this connection with crowdfunding and extremism is relatively new. Um, actually, if if people are listening to this before the 14th of February, I should really plug the fact that two of my colleagues uh, are going to be speaking at um, Europe's leading event for the crowdfunding industry. It's called A Place to Crowd, uh, and it's in Paris on the 14th of February. So please go and check that out. Uh, but the last thing I'll say on crowdfunding, actually, is, is that I feel I should point out that we're not saying there's something inherently wrong with the concept of crowdfunding. I've contributed to loads of crowdfunding initiatives in my time. Um, but if you run a crowdfunding platform, then unfortunately you can't be complacent in assuming that all of your users have good intentions. Um, and as I say, criminals will always look for platforms which have weak controls and exploit them. Yeah, that's a very, very fair point. Um, I suppose with a with the optimist hat on, I saw one interesting story in Reuters about how the the PIX platform in Brazil is now being used by the authorities to speed up the process of identifying the sort of anti-government uh, protesters who stormed government buildings after Bolsonaro wasn't re-elected. So I think, yeah, as as with everything, with new new technology emerges, it can be used for for bad, but also potentially for for good. So it's about, as you say, keeping that keeping that awareness and um, and focusing on that. Um, one thing I'd love to dig into in a bit more detail, and you, you mentioned earlier about that link between financial crime and environmental crime. Could you explain to our, our listeners a bit more about like how those are connected? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I think, again, this link's probably always been there, but the awareness of environmental crime generally has, has really grown a lot over the last four or five years. And one of the people I really credit with that actually is John Cusack, who chairs the Global Coalition to Fight Financial Crime. And he did, he did a lot to raise awareness of this when he was co-chair of the Wolfsburg group. Um, but as, as awareness has increased, it's allowed more people to connect the dots, I think, between environmental crime and financial crime. There's a few ways that works. So for the types of criminals who engage in environmental crime to be successful, by default, they will typically need to engage in multiple other forms of crime, which are, are much more straightforwardly familiar to us as financial crimes. So if you take something like wildlife crime, Whenever there's been a successful investigation into wildlife crimes, we, we invariably see this pattern whereby those crimes were facilitated by, let's say, bribery and corruption uh, in terms of bribing, uh, say, port officials or fraud uh, in terms of um, um, counterfeit uh, customs and excise documentation. Uh, and of course, money laundering at the end for the dispersal of those profits. Uh, there's this perception as well that um, from a criminal perspective, it represents a, a better um, low risk, high reward ratio, essentially, compared to a lot of other types of crime, because the the sentences are less severe. So if you, if you get caught for 
committing environmental crime, you, you're likely to have a um, less of a sentence than you would for something like drug trafficking. No, that's that's really helpful context. Thank you. Um, Jess, my knowledge of deep fakes is limited to like BBC dramas and, and TV shows, but how do criminals work when you turn technologies such as uh, deep fakes? Yes. So criminals have started to use these new technologies. It's a new opportunity for criminals to start to think about how to do things um, differently. Um, so for example, a, a criminal might look to use deepfake technologies um, to create an account, for example, using fraudulent information. Um, so they might open an account, bypass some of the checks, for example, using that deepfake technology. Um, I'm this is an interesting one because it's something that's kind of a, a pretty sexy topic for 2023. Lots of people are talking about it, but when we're dealing with clients, we don't actually see it very often still. So it's one of those really interesting topics. It's great to see deep fake videos and all of this. Um, and whilst we are starting to see some of it through identity verification and onboarding journeys, it's still at that early stages. Um, so with that horizon scanning head on, that's where firms really need to think about this is something that we need to be aware of and protect against as we go into 2023 and beyond. But at the moment, there are still plenty of easier and much simpler ways for criminals to, you know, open accounts or take over other accounts and things like that. So um, it's interesting and one to look out for, but not a, a massive problem yet. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with that. It's a suspicion at the moment rather than a kind of piece of really hard knowledge. Um, but I do agree that, that we might see it playing out in things like um, synthetic identity fraud. Um, another thing that occurred to me just at the weekend, actually, because there's been quite a lot of press around romance scams recently. Um, and when you see those, those articles, um, you quite often uh, see the stories of the victims of those crimes and uh, you often hear that their first realization that they were being scammed comes from when they did a reverse image search using the photos of the people they thought they were talking to um, so in our line of work it always helps to be able to think like the criminals do and so if you were faced with that problem i.e my victims are becoming wise to the existence of reverse image search um, what would you do? You might use the capabilities of AI to create images uh, that won't be picked up by that. And I think that's another way that, that the, these technologies might be exploited. So we've had deep fakes, romance scams. Jess, are there any other trends that are keeping the industry up at night that we think are in that sort of maybe but not yet category? Um, I mean, the biggest industry trend right now, it's definitely not so sexy at all, actually. the um, it's, it's around APP fraud. This is something that has been around in 2022. It's still around in 2023. And firms really need to be aware of it, particularly we, we work with a lot of payments firms. And with the new APP fraud mandatory reimbursement model just around the corner, we had the consultation last year. This is going to be a real focus point, especially for firms with tight budgets, because you're going to have to put in place a lot of different things to make sure you aren't just throwing out a lot of mandatory reimbursement to fraud victims, which is going to be costly as well. Just a quick note, APP is authorised push payment fraud uh, for anyone that hasn't heard of it. It's um, where a customer would authorise a payment to something that they didn't realise was fraudulent. Um, 
it's really hard for firms to spot because that customer is authorizing the payment themselves, which makes it very, very difficult. But with this uh, mandatory reimbursement model where they will have to shell out the reimbursement to victims, it's going to be a key focus for this year. No, that's definitely one to watch out for. Um, We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. So while there are emerging trends in financial crimes and slightly scary things potentially lurking around the corner, there are also new and innovative solutions from the good guys looking to protect the industry. So Ian, what are you most excited about? Yeah, so I think for me, uh, artificial intelligence is really the the single most promising development uh, in the anti-financial crime space, probably since the introduction of rules-based transaction monitoring. Um, there's really been a step change over the last few years where we've started to see it applied in a more advanced way um, and being used to kind of uncover and, and to help investigate more efficiently different types of criminal activity. Um, so actually it came out in our survey that uh, I think 31% of respondents to a question about the application of AI said that they needed uh, better prioritization of alerts using artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it's one of the reasons why we're we're rolling out this smart alerts functionality. Cool. Um, Jess, do you share the excitement about AI? I do indeed. Uh, and actually what is a little bit exciting as well is how positive the regulators and other bodies and standard setters are. Um, previously, we've been a li- they've been a little bit tentative about uh, new technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And that tentativeness is actually warranted because if you use these technologies uh, incorrectly, you open yourselves out to um, lots of bias and all of those different issues when you're using a number of different technologies. But the Wolfsburg Group, for example, published something late last year that was really positive looking at the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, basically saying we totally back this. Um, We get it that we cannot be fighting financial crime effectively without utilising some of these new technologies, because we're understanding that firms have to collate so much data from so many different sources, bring them together and holistically analyse customer information, transaction data, have lots of different data fees, and they just cannot do that properly uh, without these different pieces of technology. Having a bunch of manual analysts try to sift through this data just isn't working, it's not fast enough, um, and isn't very good, doesn't actually spot the risks and the suspicion. So I think this is quite exciting. Yeah, it certainly certainly sounds it. Um, Ian, one of the stats you guys flag in the report is, you know, I suppose, almost in line with what Jess is saying, that lots of the people you speak to are planning to just increase hiring in you know, they're planning to increase headcount. Um is that do you think that's being driven by the right things? Like are they increasing the headcount and looking at technology, or do you think they're increasing the headcount and just trying to stick to some of these older older processes? Mm. So that's a great question. I think it's probably going to vary quite a lot from one organization to another. Uh, I think if you go back to, to my, my kind of triangle of people, processes and technology, uh, um, 
people are always going to be really important, but but you can't simply throw bodies at this problem. Uh, as Jess was was saying, it, it just isn't effective in the long run, and and you do need to kind of empower your staff um, to to have the right tools at their disposal. It's one of the reasons why we're kind of so keen to to push things like entity resolution and network resolution where you can kind of form a view of risk uh, that's based on a much deeper pool of data uh, and start to sort of tease out the connections between different entities and i think the possibilities um, which are presented by that type of uh, technology are, are going to be quite powerful and we're going to see a lot more of that over the next couple of years jess i don't think we can have a show on financial crime without talking about peps or politically exposed people, persons. Um, what sort of innovations do you think we're going to see in this space? You know, have certain types of peps started to receive a greater focus this year? Yes. Uh, and that's probably more because of some of the political landscapes and those kind of things. We've got a lot of political instability, a lot of focus. Um, I mean, even in the UK, we've got these big conversations around transparency. There was one today at uh, Prime Minister's questions, literally this lunchtime, talking around transparency, corruption, those kind of things. Um, and because of that intense focus, people are really looking at um, politically exposed persons or PEPs. Traditionally, it's had we've had a focus on just that sort of high level state person or, you know, that sort of level one PEP. But actually, we're now looking at those level twos, um, also relatives and close associates. So people that are close to the PEPs, but not necessarily the PEPs themselves. So those people have quite a bit of risk exposure um, because PEPs will probably not be doing the laundering of their own funds themselves. They'll be utilizing their network in order to, to move funds around. Um, so we've got more of a focus on this and we are looking at that broader web of people related to uh, PEPs. Nobody does this perfectly, though, because there's no single great database of all PEPs um, and all connected persons. So lots of firms have different ways of pulling this data together. Um, and I've seen lots of people do it in different ways. But that's where the direction and the focus is going for this year. No, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for setting that out. Um, Ian, what evolution are we seeing in the sort of KYB know your business and KYC know your customer space? Yeah, I think KYB is a in particular is a really hot topic at the moment. Um, we at Comply Advantage, we really anticipate that it's going to be one of those areas where funding for innovation will continue to flow. Um, I think it's, it's before I kind of go into the answer, I think it's really important to say that KYB doesn't become just another compliance process which sits in a silo somewhere. Uh, so we're really actively working on the problem of managing financial crime risk at an enterprise level. So we want solutions that pull in risk indicia from a range of different sources and, and combines all of that with the screening of corporate entities um, to deliver a view of risk, which is greater than the sum of its parts, uh, if that makes sense. It's what we call an orchestrated approach uh, in the report. But on KYC, uh, over the last few years, we've, we've seen this transition to what's sometimes referred to as perpetual KYC. So instead of screening your customers for various risks at the point of onboarding, and then maybe batch screening them against sanctions and PEPs lists once a week or even less frequently, uh, and then perhaps doing periodic reviews on them every one, three or five years, depending on, on how you risk rate them. Now it's more a case of continuously monitoring for changes to the risks that they represent and performing event-driven reviews uh, when those triggers happen that, that cause you to, to need to go and look at them again. 
Ian's just picked up on two of the really, really big topics for this year, orchestration and perpetual KYC. Those are our big words for this year. Look out for them at all the financial crime conferences for sure. What are the big changes that you're seeing, Jess? Uh, I was going to pick out orchestration as well, Ian, um, because so many clients that we're working with at the moment, they have a bunch of financial crime tools that are doing lots of different parts of the framework, but they're not talking to each other very well. Um, So it's bringing in that orchestration layer to get the different inputs to be talking to each other. um, And you can get a real holistic view of the risk profile of customers. Um, Again, perpetual KYC comes into this as well, because once you can pull in all of those different risk data points, you can start to have an ongoing view of the risk of your your customer base. Um, So, yeah, orchestration, all those big words. Those are the key things for this year. Interesting. Um, we've touched on the, the link between financial crime and environmental crime. Are you seeing any innovations in, in that space? Do you think we'll see closer ties between AML and ESG initiatives to crack out all of the acronyms this year, Ian? Yeah, uh, well, well, I should say we're, we're definitely seeing more and bigger firms starting to prioritise ESG programmes. Uh, now, I don't think that AML is always going to be part of the conversation in banks when the subject of ESG comes up. But over time, I think there are reasons to think it, that, that it might start to be. So if you think about the E part, so yes, as you say, we've spoken about environmental crimes and how there's a heavy overlap with AML there. And, and indeed, that, they, that they're a predicate offence to money laundering. The S part, social uh, would include considerations around things like uh, human trafficking, extremism, modern slavery, all this stuff that we were talking about earlier. And so there are all um, some very relevant topics from an anti-financial crime standpoint there. Uh, and on the G, the governance part, uh, I did notice quite recently that the uh, European Banking Authority recently set out their roadmap around sustainable finance and ESG. And one of the segments in that roadmap was for firms to integrate ESG factors and risks into the wider process of risk management. So a a good risk management framework should be led by your first line of defence and it should interpret risk as the impact of uncertainty on your ability to achieve your objectives. And so if you as an organization have a stated ESG objective, uh, can you say you're really meeting that if you don't also actively work to stop some of those crimes that we've just mentioned? Yeah, for sure. Um, Jess, what what, what do you think? I mean, to me, it feels, I mean, maybe this is oversimplifying, but maybe it feels to me more like if banks spent less time planting trees and and more time focusing on financial crime, they'd probably have a bigger impact. But um, am, am I oversimplifying it? (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a that's a great way of putting it. But I think I think what's quite useful here is that the financial crime space and general risk management has a really good framework. So most banks will have a really good framework already in place to deal with these problems. Weaving ESG into this existing risk management framework makes complete sense. It's it's a sensible way of starting to manage those risks. Um, I mean, ultimately, back to the horizon scanning um, perspective, though, there's going to be more regulations around this just around the corner anyway. So if you start to use some of these frameworks, it will set yourself up quite nicely. But let's see what um, sort of regulatory frameworks are put in place and what you'll have to be putting in place in the coming years. For sure. Um Sadly, we're coming towards the, the tail end of the show. So I suppose one last question to get both your perspectives on. Um, what is the one piece of advice, in that you'd give to a company looking to protect itself from financial crime this year, perhaps with tighter budgets than, than before? And I'm guessing, obviously, number one is to read your report. But apart from that. 
Yeah, that should go without saying, of course. Uh, I think it's an interesting one. Um, I'd call back to those three elements I spoke about earlier. So look across your people, your process and, and your technology. Ask yourself where you're having the most headaches. And if you decide it is on the technology side and you do want to change something there, I say, remember to bring in those other parts of your business who have skin in that game. So it always surprises me that a lot of people who work in senior financial crime roles don't talk to, for example, their chief technology officers, their chief product owners, their chief data officers, or their data privacy officers, or their, their CISOs, their, their uh, um, information security officers. So just remember, it takes a whole village to raise a child. And I think the same is true for introducing new technology to your infrastructure, particularly if you're in a larger organization. So get those other people invested in what you're doing and why it's so important. And um, give us a call. Great advice. Jess, what about you? I think I actually would counter Ian slightly on that being the best place to start because Ian set out uh, the basic target operating model type frameworks, your people processes, technology. Um, and that's a great place to start. But actually, I would step back one bit further and actually look closely at what your specific financial crime risks are. So actually start with your financial crime risk assessment. Look back at what that is. Have, have any risks changed for this, for, for this year? look at some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast and then assess what might need to change across your operating model. So do you need more people because the typology has changed? Do you need a different piece of technology to deal with a new crime risk that you're dealing with? Um, so I would take that step one step further and start with that risk assessment and then build out a proportional framework. So making sure that you have covered yourself, but it's proportional and aligned to your specific risks. Really practical advice. Thank you. Well, I've learned an absolute ton from you both. Um, so very sadly, wrapping up today's discussion, but thank you so much for, for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies, Jess? So find me on LinkedIn, Jessica Kath, and it's just fintrail.com. Awesome. Ian, what about you? Yeah, absolutely. So complyadvantage.com is our website. Uh, my email is ian.armstrong at complyadvantage.com. And I should say Ian is spelt with two I's, the Scottish way, so I-A-I-N. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. I mean, if it was Irish, it would have all sorts of letters. And I say that coming from a, from an Irish an Irish family, <laughs> so... Um. At least seven, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can find me, uh, Kate Moody, on LinkedIn at Kate Moody or on Twitter at K8.Moody. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>